Hi, and welcome to the Innovator Chronicles. I'm Emily Watt, Head of Innovation for BP's Trading and Shipping Business. Welcome to our sixth podcast in this series where we interview experts and startup founders who've had the courage to go with the conviction of their ideas, sharing their experiences, their personal journeys, industry views, and visions for the future. I am really lucky in my line of work that I get to meet and work with so many brilliant startups run by fearless entrepreneurs who are pioneering new technologies, new approaches, and new solutions to tackle the challenges of today, tomorrow, and well beyond. We couldn't keep these inspirational stories all to ourselves. And on that note, I am delighted to introduce our guest for today, Jojo Hubbard, co-founder and CEO at Electron. Jojo, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Emily, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be with you. So you started your energy career in clean tech financing and investment, then to McKinsey, and now co-founder and CEO of Electron, a company that aims to decarbonize and transform the energy sector, which I know we'll get into in detail. Before all of this, you were originally a novelist. So I'd love if you could take us through that journey and the key decision points and pivots that you made that led you to where you are today. I would say a, a failed novelist. I was a successful short story writer who intended to write a novel. Like every other 21-year-old novelist was convinced that my novel was going to be written in Russia. So I went to Russia, Post University to learn Russian and to write some stuff and to make my Russian better at the kind of lowest possible cost with chatting to people in bars and cafes and what have you in Russian. And found myself talking about the renewable transition all the time and just being completely fascinated by it. And it, it became a like, real specialist area of vocab for me. And then conversations got interesting enough that it moved into English. And I guess I felt like I was, we were kind of one of the first generations who grew up. Like there's a, there's a problem, the world's burning, there's a solution, it's wind and solar. And I just kind of like felt that was happening. And it wasn't really until you kind of got out into the world and started talking to people about it that I realized how much had to happen around that for a transition like we're in today to happen. It was really appealing to me also because it was like this kind of melting pot, you know, of like regulation, politics, storytelling, economics, every polymath dream. But I, I couldn't work out how I could be helpful in it because in the world that kind of I grew up in, I thought like energy and a career in energy was like for engineers. So I was kind of good at maths. So I thought okay, I'll, I'll go be an investment bank and bring some financing into it. And that was a really fascinating point of the transition. That was the first big clean tech bust. So I was doing a lot of debt restructurings for some of the kind of early solar, early wind companies. And then you saw this kind of like massive boom off the back of that. And you know, a lot of these kind of big offshore wind financings and what have you. And we started to see this problem again and again and again. Of, okay, okay, so we can build loads of renewables and capital wants to flow into it, but the grid can't necessarily take it all the time or in this location or what have you. And moving through these problems, like obviously the answer is batteries. And spun out of that, tried to start investing in batteries but quite quickly on the investment side, realized that batteries weren't the answer without market-based price signals. And that really was the kind of beginning of this obsession about how on earth or where on earth you could build these kind of local energy markets from. So that took me to McKinsey. Um, it kind of ended with this- Why McKinsey? Did you just think that they knew what they were doing in the space? There was someone at McKinsey called Jeremy Oppenheim, who was writing and publishing a lot about this transition and, and you know, who had a kind of big voice in this space, like very much before his time at McKinsey. And he actually became a systemic, the company he founded, became an investor in us later. He left a couple of months after I joined, which I think was nothing personal. <laughs> I joined in the very bottom and he was at the very top. But I think I was trying to work out like something like market redesign. Like who do people listen to? Obviously, I wasn't very well suited to a career in the government. So I was like, well, maybe I can go and advise it. And, and 
you don't get to set your own homework when you're a management consultant, you answer other people's questions. But I did really get to understand kind of digital transformation and how some of these big utilities worked and what some of the blockers were. And I think I went into McKinsey thinking like they would do it. And I came out of it being like, oh God, I've got this really good idea, but no one's doing it. Like we should do it. I love what you said about the not being able to ask your own questions, but yet the training you get from a place like McKinsey is second to none. And then you get to learn, right, when you want to ask your own questions and what questions that they are. Yeah, absolutely. It was such invaluable training. So McKinsey, and then take us to how you made it to Electron. So I was looking for this question of how you integrate millions or hundreds of millions of distributed energy assets. They could be wind or solar. They could be like electric cars, electric heating systems, batteries or what have you into this top-down hierarchical energy systems. I was already really excited about the idea of markets and price signals. It, it was very obvious to me from my growth through this space that the energy transition wasn't just like coal and gas to wind and solar. It was like build enough capacity to meet demand, like a kind of capacity-driven system to this like bottom-up optimization system where sometimes there's loads of power and sometimes there's no power and a lot of the intelligence and the decision around when, where and how to use power kind of moves towards the bottom. And in any industry, when you're trying to find these kind of efficiencies, but you've got so many different actors with so many different needs, the answer is usually markets. And yet it felt like the energy industry hadn't confronted this at a kind of smaller micro level at all. I mean, there were no locational price signals back in those days. And yet there was like a whole bunch of wind farms that couldn't be built and batteries that couldn't be built because there was like some completely resolvable conflict in that particular location in the grid that they could both work together to resolve. I'm loving this. Okay, so this is a great segue to actually get into more about Electron. I'm going to read back to you what I know that it is. So Electron is a market platform as a service that is decarbonizing energy systems. That's sort of a mouthful. Um, Can you unpick that for us? What does it exactly mean? Why is it important? Let's start with decarbonizing energy systems, right? So one of the first things you have to decarbonize in order to get a kind of low carbon energy system is the production of power. If you sit back and look at all the wind and solar being built, you might think, that we know how to do it. But we've got this massive variable power base. We've got power sometimes and we don't have power other times. So decarbonizing the energy system is also about creating this flexible demand that can use clean renewable power when it's available and avoid using it when it's not. And there was a really interesting study that MIT did, I think that came out earlier this year, that looked at, for example, electric vehicle adoption and how many carbon savings you'd make by moving everything to electric now, before you've decarbonized the energy system, and they thought it was maybe like 2% because you'll disincentivize more people to build gas to supply like a higher demand versus when you can actually send these clean supply demand type locational price signals. And they found that was more like a 30% saving. So decarbonizing energy systems isn't just building more wind and solar. It's orchestrating all of this different activity around the availability of low carbon generation. I mean, if you have all these independent energy producers and they're not integrated, what do you really have? Yeah, exactly. Everyone's just kind of working blind. People probably need power now and kind of pushing it out. I want power now and pulling it in. And that's really got to change. That then leads on to like, what, what is a market platform? We've actually created a piece of software that enables new price signals to be created. Let's say a network utility has an excess of power up in Scotland and is turning wind off there. They want to be able to signal to energy users or even other energy producers in the region, okay, we will pay you right now to produce less power or to consume more power because that's going to create more space on the grid that I can keep then exporting this wind. And it's win-win, like everyone makes more money. Why wouldn't you do it? Because it's complex, 
because it's like a kind of a really interesting real-time evolving problem but quite high stakes you don't want a blackout you don't want the power to go out we've spent probably the best part of the last five years trying to work out a model that works to create those kind of price signals but to create them in a way that's completely agnostic as to who is starting the market price signals we've got network operators we've got wind farms and also what jurisdiction those price signals are being heard in you know it was really important to us early on we didn't just find a solution that worked for the uk or we didn't just find something that worked for Canada or California or, or wherever we are. We essentially provide, launch and operate your own local energy market. And we're providing that as a service to companies like, as I said, network utilities. It could be like a local municipality. It could be a kind of regional supplier to start those completely new conversations and then that completely new way of using power grids. And of all these participants, you know, in this platform, is it a no brainer? Are they flocking to the idea? What stage are you at in terms of maturity where you're working with all these participants on the platform? It's really early days of some of these local energy markets, but there are a lot of parties already, particularly on the kind of flexibility side, who can engage with it, who are controlling customer assets, you know, electric water heaters, cars or what have you, who are like screaming out for new price signals and ways to add more value to their customers. There are some super companies like that, particularly in the UK, actually. Onboarding them is easy because they are, you know, sitting on virtual power plants, they're kind of API native. They know how to talk and respond to price signals. The harder bit is market design. It's like, okay, well, who gets to send the price signal on the back of which piece of information, integrating all these different kind of data flows, you know, from network monitoring systems, from energy price signals, from different parties, virtual power plants. So there's definitely a kind of integration and kind of standard setting challenge. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it is win-win. You know, when you're turning off renewables, everyone loses. Consumers get higher cost energy or miss out on low cost energy. The wind farms lose money. The replacement cost is higher, particularly, for example, in the Orkney Islands, where we launched our first market. This is so exciting. I love that it's actually kind of early on in the journey because there's just, I mean, there's just a massive opportunity here. Okay, but I know we could continue on this, but I'm going to take it in a different direction. So let's take a step back. We talk a lot about failing forward on my team. We experiment, we take risks, and we learn and grow. I think as any innovation forward-looking function does or business. So what's your perspective on failing when founding and scaling a company? And, you know, I guess in light of the many failures there must be along the way, are they easier to navigate now? I'm not wired to think of failing because failing sounds like there's some finite period and failing is like where you end up in that finite period. That's why I really like failing forward because it's, it's this idea of the kind of momentum and things keep going. You can't really fail as long as it's keeping going. We definitely had a really interesting journey to essentially working out which piece exactly of the problem we were building the solution for. And as a result, we scaled in a, let's call it a non-linear way, which I think is really important for some entrepreneurs to kind of understand like that's okay too. We were seeing that the vision's fairly constant. You know, there's going to be thousands of different local market kind of trading arrangements in the next three to four years and tens of thousands thereafter. And they all need a platform to exist on and can't have all those markets operating independently. Our first vision is, okay, we're going to build this shared data meta layer. We could have distributed asset register off which different parties could call the same energy assets and build different types of markets and price signals. And we had a huge amount of collaboration from some like super kind of big players in the energy space to work out how and what that should look like. But what we learned in that process is no one was ready to then go and build their own marketplace on top of that. So we kind of moved one step forwards in the value chain and started actually looking at developing those local energy marketplaces ourselves and found a huge audience for that. And you know, in the last 12 months, kind of regulation is changing and is beginning to require some of these local network optimization markets to exist. 
we've really been on that whole journey of where is it in the value chain we sit. While we've been doing that at the same time, the industry has too, you know, we've been in this really privileged position to be able to kind of lead some of that thinking and be able to work with governments and regulators and feedback, you know, here's some of the blockers and you think this is the answer, but here's the reason this wasn't the answer for us. And you're going to find the same thing. And one amazing thing about the energy industry is just how collaborative we are. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's really like a whole bunch of people here who are like absolutely wired to go and find the best possible answer. And that's why they've chosen this industry and this like fundamental service that this industry offers. Failing forward, it's just a function of the transition. It's now something. So I also sit on the UK regulator Ofgem's expert advisory board. It's actually a way of thinking that they're encouraging these monolithic network utilities to actually have a go at trialing and failing different things and being ambitious and more kind for the kind of outcomes you didn't expect. That is how you find the most interesting answers in a world that's changing as much as this is. For me, failing forward, it's the ability to adjust to change rapidly, the resilience to constantly iterate. I'm I, Everything you said resonates so much because I feel like the second that we have a process that's established or something that I'm comfortable with, <laughs> it's time to change it. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> so deal with a new blocker or a challenge or an opportunity. And that's really like actually the exciting part because once you fix something, you've got to undo another layer of complexity. I so um, agree with that. And I also think that people who go and start companies or even work in startups as crazy people, they tend to like change and they really have to. Great. So, okay, looking to the future, we, you know, as innovators collectively, we're driven to help solve problems, right? And capture opportunities all around us. So really ensuring that we're prepared for the future. What do you think the future holds for the energy industry? What's your vision for 2030? Well, what's really interesting about this flip from like build the right amount of power plants and let users be kind of passive and have power trickle down to them, which is the old world, to this kind of bottom up world of have loads of wind and solar, but get users to really adjust behavior or, or energy assets to adjust behavior around that. It's also flipping the focus from big utilities to these kind of regulated monopolies down to the consumer and what the consumer wants to do, what the consumer is going to accept and how this consumer is going to react. So you're seeing all these new, really interesting energy as a service models, free power if you live near these wind farms, more regionally specific, more customer specific, more asset specific. You know, if you have this kind of battery in this kind of car, you can be traded under my kind of algorithm it's definitely going to be a lot more consumer centric. It's going to be a lot more service driven. And there's going to be a huge amount more opportunities to interact with that broader energy system. So much more connectivity. I mean, I feel like the energy industry now is in this digital revolution that probably fintech was in the 1980s and you know telecoms was in the 1990s. And we're just there now, but we're connecting all these different parties. And that's just giving birth to so many different types of business models and new consumer demands and new consumer products. I agree. I think there's a lot more attention to the end consumer than was typically paid attention to before. Or you think of like in banks and larger companies who are traditionally like B2B and it's now much more integrated and B2B and B2C is sort of blending, which is cool. Conscious of time, we'd like to end our podcast with a quick fire round of lighter questions. So I'll start with the first one. What is an organization that inspires you for their work in innovation? So I'm really into ag tech as well. I think that's another big area where decarbonization is a big deal. And there's a company called Indigo that did this really cool thing. Their product basically allows lower carbon farming, but they then opened up a whole new, almost like investment mechanism into a whole bunch of different products that enable low carbon farming by getting corporates who are looking for carbon offsets to invest in farmers who want to decarbonize their farming system. Number two, what's one of your other passions and would you ever start a business in that area? I guess if you get tired of electrons. <laughs> I love design. I, I love like interior design. I like kind of stage and set design. And I love how kind of instantly realizable it is. It's very different to like trying to transform the energy industry. And, and uh, last year before lockdown, I finally got to 
put a show on across this kind of whole series of gardens and different stories and definitely won't be making career out of it but just so rewarding to dream something and then see it a couple of you know months later as opposed to this much broader longer term transition that we find ourselves in in, in energy i love it okay and last we always appreciate a good book or a film recommendation if you have one there's this film that I watched again the other day. It's the, have you seen the Before Sunrise, Midnight and Sunset series? No. I couldn't recommend them more highly. It's two actors, Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke, over 18 years, each film's nine years apart, and kind of different stages of their romance. And it's so romantic, but it's so poignantly true, kind of like painful at the same time. And those are two actors who I'm obsessed by. So I've been really, really enjoying watching that again. Amazing. I'm adding it to the list. Jojo, you really inspired me. I have to say thank you so much for this. I, I'm sure our listeners will will love it. And um, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Can't wait to see what the exciting things to come with Electron. Well, I'd love speaking to you. Thank you so much for making the time.